Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Wednesday morning, the morning after. Uh, we're all dealing with a hangover from the Ohio primaries. Uh, you can find all of our all of our hot takes uh, on the Bulwark. Uh, J.D. Vance catapults from dead in the water fourth place uh, to be the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate after he gets the endorsement from Donald Trump. So the obvious take there is... Yes, Donald Trump's endorsement matters a lot. Donald Trump still controls uh, the Republican Party. I think we kind of knew all of that. But we're going to talk about that a little bit later. We are joined on today's podcast by A.B. Stoddard, associate editor and columnist for Real Clear Politics. First of all, happy Wednesday, A.B. Happy Wednesday, Charlie. Halfway through your very long week. Do your friends call you A.B.? Yes, this is like your hundredth time on the show, and I don't think I've ever asked you that. Well, my name is Alexandra Brandon yeah. Stoddard. My mother and father, have, I haven't told you this story before. Yeah, no, I would like to hear it. Well, apparently in 1891, when I was born, there must have uh, been no sonograms, but more choices than boy or girl, because they planned for a boy and I was to be Anthony. They did not plan for a girl. <laughs> so they, I don't were know, this they were locked in on that, huh? Yeah. And so I arrived and they decided to name me after both of them. Brandon is my father's name and Alexandra is my mother's name and was my father's name. And so it's a perfectly nice name. But I, my mother started writing books about being happy when I was as it was a mm -hmm. teenager. And so when I started writing for newspapers, I used my full name and then her groupies would call me and track me down at, you know, in Dale uh, City, Virginia at my first reporting job. And so I was stoppers. forced to use my initials and that's, that's how it happened. So were her fans and her readers, were they happy people? Always. Okay. All right. But you just didn't need happy stalkers back then. Right. I, I were sort of opposite people. I, I think I inherited my father's cynicism. So it was it was definitely not a good mistake um, for people good, to make. Good. So I had I had to find another moniker. So well, I'm I'm glad that you inherited the cynicism because you have come to the right place today. All right. <laughs> so right. let's talk about this whole story, which has so many layers to it. The Roe versus Wade decision, uh, the leaked draft by Samuel Alito, who leaked the draft. Uh, what does that actually mean? The actual opinion, which again, is not a final opinion. I thought it was interesting that give you a sense of, of just how monumental all this is. Uh, the, the Supreme Court almost never talks about its internal operations ever. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts released a statement yesterday confirming the authenticity of this draft, but, but stressing that uh, it was not the final opinion. Uh, we don't necessarily know what they draft, you know, how many revisions the draft has gone through, whether there are still five justices. He's, you know, pushing an investigation for all of this. And, you know, so there are so many different aspects of this. Uh, what's going on? What does it mean for the court? What does the world, what does the country look like post-Roe uh, with, uh, you know, half of the states look like they are poised to ban abortion in some fashion or other? Uh, the, the divide between the red states and the blue states bigger than ever. And, of course, the political fallout. So where do you want to start with this, A.B.? Where should we start because, I mean, we've had these discussions like this is really a big deal. I, I think it's safe to say that this really is a big deal and almost certainly will have an impact. But nobody really knows what that impact is going to be at this point. I would agree Do with that. you that yeah, the, yeah. the ramifications and the consequences are just dizzying and multiple. But I don't think we have a handle on what it's going to feel and look like, you know, eight months, eight years from now. So it, it is it is so profound, though, I I was sitting in my kitchen when when I first discovered this and I I had that moment where you realize that you'll always remember this. Um, mm. it, it is really incredible. The, the interesting thing about I just thinking about John Roberts and what a couple years he's had being attacked by Trump by name, um, having to respond to that, that was unheard of sitting in on an impeach, you know, presiding over an impeachment trial, the Ginny Thomas text, yeah, the idea that Sidney Powell was running around with a plan in January of 2021 before the sixth to have everything end up in the Supreme Court with Justice Alito. I mean, this this court has been marred in so many tawdry ways 
um, in recent years under Chief Justice John Roberts. And he's, you know, taken such pains to try to preserve the reputation and integrity of the court that just as you mentioned, what a morning he had trying to have to, you know, have to deal with this for the court to admit it. The document was real, which I guess they just couldn't handle doing the night before. And then and then having to, to call on a call for an investigation under the Supreme Court's marshal. It seems from experts, and I'm certainly not one, that that this is an unprecedented situation and that mm-hmm. this is, A, is probably not a crime, and that, B, it's going to be very difficult for the court to actually probe itself. It's unlikely that, the, that they would want the DOJ to be involved, to have another branch of government um, you know, zooming in on their uh, personal um, documents and, and communications, let alone the marshal of the court doing it in-house. So it, this is very rocky terrain for the chief justice and for the court itself to even have to deal with in terms of this breach of trust and the consequences of that. I don't know how far they'll go and that we'll ever even get a real answer. And yeah. I don't think that it is a criminal offense. I think these leaks are not prosecuted unless they deal with classified information. So the people on the right who don't want to talk about the consequences of this quote unquote victory that they've sought all these decades, and they just want to talk about the leak, aren't they'll keep talking about it, but I don't know that they'll be satisfied in the end. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, Justice Roberts, uh, as an institutionalist, has always been worried about is the, you know, quote unquote, legitimacy of the court, however you interpret that particular you know, phrase. And, and the real anxiety on the part of, I think, uh, serious members of the judiciary to preserve the independence of the judiciary and to push back against attempts to politicize the judiciary. And I think this is one of those uh, those moments of crisis for, for the high court, because it's very clear yes. that the court has been politicized, that this ruling and you know other rulings are not changing because the law has changed. What has changed has been the personnel. What happens is that when one justice drops off and another justice comes on the court, that uh, the Supreme Court majority changes the rule of five, the law of five, as Justice Brennan used to call it, you know, has changed. And therefore, what the Constitution says changes based on the the outcome of the election and the personnel on the court. And again, I, I think that a lot of people have already been there, but I think it's it feels very naked right now. And I think it's hard to come back from that. I mean, I, I think for years we've been talking about, you know, a 5-4 court, a 6-3 court. It just becomes just so much, you know, more stark, particularly when you have a court that is willing to say, yeah, that whole thing about settled precedent, not so much. We are prepared to reverse precedents, even cases that are regarded in that terminology as the super precedents, because it's not just Roe, it's not just Casey, it's the entire, the whole line of jurisprudence that has now been been overturned. And their willingness to do this after the change in personnel, again, for and, and I understand how strongly many judges feel about this, that we are not a political branch of government. And yet, from the outside, that's what it is. That's what's just, that has happened. Yeah, and and it it is really an interesting moment for the Democrats because I have always argued that they have not made the court a priority in the way that the Republican Party has and the way the conservative movement has. And I think we've talked about that before, Charlie. I mean, they they just I watched and listened in 2019. Um, at that point, there was just Gorsuch and and Kavanaugh, but a huge victory for President Trump and Mitch McConnell and the right to have those two new justices. We had not yet had the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I was watching the primary campaign begin on the Democratic side and did not hear this as a priority once again in those early uh, debates and interviews between with the candidates. And as we moved into 2020, they just do not impress upon their voters what the consequences are of nominations and confirmations for the high court as a result of elections. And they, even though they had this fresh example with with two new justices that Trump was able to name and to seat. And and the idea that this all changes because of the people that you get on and the fact that Democrats, which I recently wrote about, are unlikely to, to seat another justice in what could be decades. 
literally decades, decades. Um, is something that Democrats really as a party have to reckon with with their voters, because unlike the movement on the right, which has been so well funded, so well organized, so well planned for years, they have bungled this. And now in a crisis, they need to impress upon their voters that even if you are not a single issue voter, you know, you need to make this a priority and it's going to be interesting to see if they're effective. Since you raised that point, you, you have a piece up at Real Clear Politics. Katanji Brown-Jackson could be the Democrats' last hurrah for a while. Uh, and you know, when you wrote that, the assumption was Republicans would take the Senate. And then you're looking at the map going ahead to 2024, that uh, it's going to be very, very difficult for uh, a Democratic president to get any nominees through the Senate for really as far as the eye can see. Is that I mean, that's from the Democratic point of view, that's a pretty grim prognosis. For the high court. Just imagine that this is completely ignored. I mean, this is they, they just refuse to talk about this. So Katanji Brown Jackson's the first one in 12 years. Mm-hmm. And this could go on for many, many, many more um, because of, of what you just noted. So in 2024, the map for the Democrats in the Senate is incredibly grim. So it's likely the Republicans take the Senate back this year and do not give Joe Biden any hearing on any nominee should an opening, a vacancy occur. Let's say somebody retires or there's a death. Nothing in 2023. Mitch McConnell refuses to comment. He's already indicated he's not going to give he's not going to give um, a, a process to a Democratic nominee in 2023 or 2024 no. if he's majority leader in the Senate. Then in 24 and by January 25, they've cemented a larger Senate majority and um, and you just look at the the way that the Democrats are blocked out of winning Senate seats increasingly because of population trends and voting trends. Population trends mean that people are increasingly moving into the most populous states and states with large rural populations will have, I mean, basically they'll represent three quarters of the Senate, experts say, by 2040. And 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 the, and the bulk of the population will be represented by fewer than less than a quarter than a, the seats in the Senate. And then you look at the Electoral College and it's just very likely that the Democrats could face a, a semi-permanent majority, a minority, sorry, on the court for years to come. Again, this is never discussed. Uh, well, I'm, look, I'm looking at these numbers right now where you point out, you know, Republicans have an advantage winning Senate seats in less populous areas so that they can hold power with just 43% of the cumulative national vote total. You can control the Senate with just 43%. And then what you're citing is this University of Virginia projection that by 2040, half of the U.S. population will reside in nine states and will be represented by less than a quarter of the Senate. This would be New York, California, North Carolina, Texas, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Illinois, and Florida. So, and again, it's it's not just the structural advantage this has been the matter of, of priorities, as you have pointed out. So let's talk about the way they are reacting to this decision, because and we, we've kind of touched on all of this. So far in the first 24, 48 hours, most of the Republican reaction that I've seen has been focusing on the leak rather than the substance, which is odd, considering that this should be one of their big wins. But yesterday, and I'm sure you saw this, uh, the Senate Republican campaign arm circulated this three-page memo of talking points, you know, to tell people, now, be compassionate, be a consensus builder. Um, and feels a little bit sort of defensive. Like there's a whole section, you know, forcefully refute Democrat lies regarding positions on abortion, including Republicans do not want to throw doctors and women in jail. Mothers should be held harmless under the law. Well, that's kind of awkward because if you're making abortions illegal, somebody's going to run afoul of that. So they really want to downplay that. This is kind of an interesting moment that on the actual substance, I'm getting a very strong defensive vibe, at least in the short term. What are you seeing? I was bowled over by this. That that the night that this news broke, only Marge Green broke into tears of joy and openly celebrated this as a long-sought goal and said it was a gift from God or something. Oh, God. And, you know, hats off to Manu Raju of CNN, who asks Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell yesterday straight out, 
you have seated these most recent three justices on the Supreme Court. It is because of you that they ended up on the Supreme Court. Do you take credit for succeeding in blocking abortion now, ending abortion for millions of people? The words yeah. to this effect. And McConnell has his like total hit by a bus face and is silent for a few seconds and then says, I think the story is this egregious leak, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. So there is no celebration because we know that activists in the base who have pushed for this have a different mindset than politicians who never wanted to catch the car, wanted to fundraise off of this and run on this, but thinking that in the end there would never be any right. change that would actually threaten their standing. And so this concept, they have to grapple with this and Democrats are going to have to campaign on this, that a Republican Senate, White House and House is going to be pushed by their activists in their base to pass a national federal ban, full out ban. And and the talking points are fascinating that, that they already see that this is potentially a terrible mobilization boomerang for them. Well, I want to get to the politics in just a moment. Before we do, though, you mentioned the dog catching the car analogy. I This can't be stressed too strongly. I think that almost every Republican politician that I've ever known simply assumed that this was a free shot, that Roe would never actually be overturned. Now, that's not necessarily the case with the activist base, but the political class never thought that they would face this and always had the assumption that if they actually got this, this would really be a problem because, you know, <laughs> the, you know, to take away these kinds of rights, um, you know, in this particular environment, that's number one. Number two, however, I have a question for you. How have Democrats in so many states and at the federal level gone for all of these decades without codifying abortion rights in the law? It strikes me as an overwhelming case of political malpractice. Democrats had control of Congress. They could have done something between, you know, 1973 and, and now. I live in the state of Wisconsin, which still has an abortion ban on the books. And it just it's like, OK, why when Democrats were in charge, didn't they do something about that? And in Michigan, why didn't they change the law? Were they just so cocky that it just didn't, you know, Roe was going to be there forever. This would never happen. So therefore, all of these sort of time bombs are still sitting in the statute books. What do you think? I mean, they That's just never, a fascinating they, you know, question. You know, I think that your thesis is correct. I think it's a result of two things. One, that like Republicans, they never thought they'd have to deal with this day. And that B, they used to have a broader coalition and didn't want to rock the boat. The Democratic Party now is so purely pro-choice. But remember, they did have a big tent for so long. Right. They had many Catholic pro Tim Ryan running in Ohio. He's formerly pro pro life. Mm -hmm. um, Bob Casey of Pennsylvania and Joe Manchin, I believe, are the only pro life senators. And Henry Cuellar, who's now likely to get smashed in this runoff in Texas, House member is, I think, their only pro life member left. And so they probably didn't want to rock the boat in those state legislatures. And I do think that I think Democrats are very complacent about their majorities when they had them, you know, 40 years in the Congress. And then Democrats lose during the Obama eight years, close to 1000 seats nationally in state, I mean, across the country, you know, um, in state legislatures and gubernatorial races and all, you know, just in, and in the Congress and, and they're kind of wiped out and all of a sudden are really you know, at a huge, facing a huge liability long term that seemed to surprise them. So it was probably, um, it was probably both complacent and, and then, you know, the idea of it from maybe the pro-choice activists seemed like, you know, too provocative and why mess around because you did have pro-life um, colleagues back, back in the day. Well, the uh, switching back to the, the, the Republican side, I, I think one of the reasons why people are having mixed feelings, leaving aside the electoral, and we, I want to get to that in just a moment, what you think the blowback's going to be on all of this. Uh, the, you know, it's one thing to believe that Roe was a really badly written decision when it was handed down in January 1973. And I think Brett Stevens in the New York Times has a great piece about this. And he goes through all the reasons why this was, it was poorly written, it was poorly drafted, it was poorly argued. Even people on the left, people who are pro-choice have made that case. But then he says, but at this point, 50 years later, 
overturning Roe is not a conservative thing. It is a radical choice because, you know, conservatives believe that abrupt and profound changes to established laws and common expectations are utterly destructive of the respect for the law and the institutions established to uphold it, especially when those changes are instigated from above with neither democratic consent nor broad consensus. And so, yes, you know, there is the whole question of observing precedent, but conservatives also have to give some weight, a lot of weight to, you know, what the, the reality has been over a long period of time, the fact that society has organized itself about this. And so that, you know, the Justice Alito, you know, talks about the, the, you know, the original scheme of Roe, but it doesn't change the fact that the court broadly has upheld this right again and again and again. I mean, I, Justice Kavanaugh during his, uh, you know, his hearing said, you know, Casey is precedent on top of precedent. And so throwing this out is a very radical shift for conservatives who otherwise, I think you can make a really valid critique of the case itself, but overturning it now and all of the cases and also this draft is so sweeping in its rejection of the unenumerated rights. And I don't think we have time to get into it today, but I'm fascinated by the commentary that suggests that Alito's opinion basically calls into question all of the cases that presuppose a right to privacy or a right to be left alone in the Constitution. And that is a really big deal. If in fact, I mean, I don't know if you saw that, you know, Alberto Gonzalez, the former Republican attorney general has, a you know, talked to Politico. And he says, look, the right of privacy is not explicitly provided in the Constitution. If the, if the court holds there's no constitutional right of privacy, then any right based on the right of privacy, including but not limited to abortion, that would include marriage, sex, contraception, arguably they'd be in jeopardy. You know, Alito is arguing that no abortion separate, but Gonzalez says it's only a matter of time before the, the, the court declines to provide protections based on the right of privacy. And that's going to have tremendous implications. And I'm not sure that conservatives have really thought that through because I would think, and I'm going to write about this, that conservatives ought to have a vested interest in, in the belief that, that it's kind of a fundamental right to be left alone, deeply ingrained in American law and history. But we'll see what happens. I think that he is, Gonzalez is right, and I think that's what's so frightening, is that you, it, by by overturning something that Americans for half a century have considered settled law and saying that it's it was a, you know, it was a wimpy quasi-precedent, but we'll keep other ones, but not this one. Um, and, and on the question of privacy, you open, there's no way you can interpret this, no matter how cagey Alito is trying to be with his language. Yeah. And I think it's quite political the way he did that. Um, and, and look, Alito's just really, that's the way he is. Uh, he's, he's not even trying to hide it. Uh, but there's no way you can interpret it any other way. That once you erode privacy, everything is, you know, that's ballgame. Everything's on the table. And I do think that it's the, the Brett Stevens thesis is correct too, that this is, it's so tectonic because, because yeah, A, we assumed that this was precedent. And while it was questioned by the pro-life movement and pro-life judges over the years and politicians, it had stayed and been reaffirmed. And then this idea that it's a part of society, that this is a freedom that you have, that has been affirmed by the highest court in the land this is a privacy protection that you have. The idea of that being taken away is so radical. It is so disruptive and so explosive. And it has always been part of the consideration by the judiciary. Roberts said in his hearings that you have to consider other factors like, quote, like settled expectations, like the legitimacy of the court, like whether a particular precedent is workable or not and whether it's been eroded by subsequent developments. He says, I do think that it is a jolt to the legal system when you overrule precedent. Precedent plays an important role in promoting stability and even-handedness. And the idea that you would blow that up is something they, I'm assuming they had to have put a lot of thought into, that this would cause a huge disruption and, and create a very volatile situation. 
Okay, so let's switch gears and talk about the politics. I want to talk about um, how this might affect uh, the midterms and going forward. Also, the rather solid win by J.D. Vance uh, in Ohio says about the state of the Republican Party and the Republican electorate. But we will do that after this. So if you wake up every morning thinking, I wish this bag under my eye would just go away, you're obviously not alone because bags and puffiness under the eyes are a problem for millions of American men and women until now. Introducing the new GenuCell Serum with plant stem cell technology from Shamanix. Susan from New Jersey wrote, I've been using GenuCell for a couple of months and the puffiness around my eyes is gone. Even the crow's feet and the small lines have disappeared and haven't come back. I love your product. I use it under my eyes, around my cheekbones, and on my eyelids. So not only Susan, folks, I know people who use it and who love it. And with its instant effects, you will see results in the first 12 hours guaranteed or your money back. During the GenuCell Mother's Day sale, you can save up to 50% off all GenuCell products at GenuCell.com now. Go to GenuCell.com slash Bulwark, GenuCell.com slash Bulwark. Order today, and Shamanex will include a surprise luxury gift absolutely free. GenuCell.com slash Bulwark, GenuCell.com slash Bulwark. That's GenuCell.com slash Bulwark. Okay, we are back with A.B. Stoddard, associate editor and columnist for Real Clear Politics. We've been talking about the Roe leak, the Roe decision. So let's just, with the assumption that something like this will be embodied in the final decision that will come down in June, what does this mean politically? There's sort of a conventional wisdom that this might help Democrats mobilize. This might be a net negative for Republicans. What do you think? Do you think this will make a difference? Well, I tend to be skeptical about the ability of Democrats to mobilize their base. I did notice, and I think that we've discussed this before, that there was no reaction in the gubernatorial races in New Jersey and Virginia in late 2021 to the Texas ban. It didn't seem to register in terms of enthusiasm and fundraising and voter turnout and everything. That said, that is not the same situation as as we're dealing with now. It's going to be there's not going to be, you know, there'll be six people in the country that won't learn about this by June um, when it's made official. And of course, this is going to be ultimately the backbone of the decision because the justices who've signed on to it can't back down and Alito's not going to change his argument. We're not going to see much change here. But I I do think that if it's true, and I read this, that the most pro-choice voters in the Democratic electorate are, are the youngest There was an increase in in youth turnout in 2020 and 2018, which was a response to Trump. So with a lot of organizing and good strategy, it's possible to to get them out over this. This issue does marry two parts of the Democratic coalition. And so it's kind of a real sweet spot in that if you have the former Republican woman voter who voted enthusiastically for Democrats in 2018 and then for Biden in 2020 because she wanted to get rid of Trump or, you know, check on Trump and then get rid of Trump. But now she soured on on them and thinks they've moved to the left and they're, the border's out of control and the police are not allowed to do their jobs and, uh, you know, inflation is terrible and, and everything. They might be galvanized by this. And then, of course, if you combine that with the base of the party, the, the the non-white voter who doesn't vote in midterms, the young voter who doesn't vote in midterms, um, who all stayed home for Obama's midterms. If you get them out and you get that person who might have either voted down ballot for Republican this fall or stayed home to actually vote Democrat or at least stay home and not vote Republican, that that could be, it could really, on the margins, it could really add up. But I think it's going to take a lot of focus for the Democrats because, you know, their base is very disappointed and doesn't tend to turn out anyway. So it, it, a lot of this will be in the way that they message us and handle it. And as you noted, um, talking about this yesterday, this is a very complicated issue in that the Democrats can really burn themselves with voters uh, by being too extreme on this issue. And the idea of passing nine-month abortion bills in the Senate as a response is, is a huge mistake. I mean, you really have to message this as an early pregnancy right and not be radical on the issue of abortion or you'll you'll turn a lot of voters off. Yeah, I mean, 
you touched on a couple of things, including, you know, the, the possibility for mobilizing voters. There's also the possibility of disappointing the voters. Uh, Joe Biden said, you know, we're going to, you know, take steps. Uh, I think there's going to be a vote in the Senate on all of this. But I, I think that the outcome is relatively predictable that they're not going to uh, break the filibuster. So therefore, uh, they're not going to be able to to block this. So does that create a what do you what good are you guys? You can't do anything. Exactly. I mean, you know, I mean there is always that danger of raising expectations and then disappointing it. And the Democrats are so good at that. <laughs> well, Republicans have done this in the past as as well. Now, the other the flip side of all of this, of course, is that it just changes the nature of some of the gubernatorial elections in places like Wisconsin so dramatically because we have a, an abortion ban on the books here in Wisconsin. It's already there. It does not require any legislative action. Uh, the only thing uh, that would be needed to have it go into effect would be the defeat of the incumbent Democratic governor and attorney general. So that election, which has been relatively lower profile up until now, suddenly takes on a completely different quality. And one of the things that I have been, you know, watching here in Wisconsin, because, you know, we are so closely divided, so weirdly, you know, you know, purple state, but it really, and I, and I, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but it all comes down to the, you know, how massive is the Democratic turnout going to be? In Wisconsin, in order to win, you have to have a massive turnout from the Madison area, Dane County, um, and Milwaukee County. You have to have a massive turnout, and you have to make inroads into the suburban Milwaukee Wow counties where I live, you know, Waukesha, Zaki, Washington. And I wasn't sure that I was seeing any of that kind of enthusiasm or juice. But now, if if uh, if the, if the right to choose is almost literally on the ballot, that changes things. I agree with you. Um, I think that this, like I said, really could mobilize the the exact voters that they need to mobilize. Um, there's no question. The thing I want to return to is this idea that you know uh, that they have control of the government now, and they're telling the voters they're going to fix this now. And Elizabeth Warren is telling, urging them to, and this kind of thing. They don't have the votes to do it. They will raise expectations and disappoint people. And um, I also believe, even though they're not going to be able to bust the filibuster because Manchin won't back down, I, I still believe that this whole thing has raised the concept of, uh, because this has caused such an explosion, the idea of breaking the filibuster and having laws change every two years really doesn't make sense to me. Sounds like a recipe for disaster now that we're in this new landscape of more division and more volatility and instability. And I think the Democrats are just going to have to be careful about how they play this over the next six months. Naturally, there is going to be a lot of energy, like you said, in some of the right places for Democrats. But to run the table and, and really stop the wave, they're going to have to be careful. Yeah, hard, hard. Okay, so let's talk about uh, J.D. Vance winning in Ohio. J.D. Vance, I think, was mired in fourth place a few months ago, uh, given up for dead, lots of political obituaries. Uh, last night wins uh, convincingly. Um, the obvious takeaway from this is that Trump's endorsement still matters a lot. This is still Trump's Republican Party. Um, and, and, uh, in, in, in going forward, it will continue to be, I mean, I think that there was a lot of, uh, you know, wish casting going on that maybe he would, that Trump endorsed candidates would lose. And I think by the way, a Trump endorsed, the Trump endorsed candidate is going to lose in the Georgia, uh, gubernatorial primary, but that all of this is signs that the Republican party might be moving on or that his grip is loosening. Um, JD Vance's victory would suggest that, uh, this is a completely magnified party. What do you think? I agree, and I thought Sarah's piece in the New York Times mm -hmm. today was terrific. It, it's it, it. We've talked about this. There, there are people that just keep going back to their um, well of hope, where they they won't deal with it. They hope that someone else will deal with Trump. They didn't see the tweet. This is all going to go away, and that was the thinking on his endorsements. Yes, it'll be great for Mitch McConnell when Purdue goes down and Brian Kemp prevails in the Georgia primary on May 24th. But this is going to be a really mixed bag and it's going to be problematic. This idea that his influence is on the wane is ridiculous. He presents so many problems because A, his candidates could lose general election. B, he will force his candidates to 
to say that they won't support Mitch McConnell and see when his primary candidates lose their primaries, there's the potential that he will tell all the voters to stay home and not vote anyway because the whole thing is rigged. So, you know, giving the advantage to the Democrats. So it's it, it's such a mess in so many ways. And, you know, I know you and I agree on this. They're going to reap what they've sown. They have not stood up, you know, aggressively to fend this off. First of all, they obviously didn't stop him from running again because they refused to convict him in a Senate trial where they thought he was guilty and that he should be convicted. But but now with all these endorsements, they've played small ball and, and tried not to have a huge fight, picking their battles here and there. You know, McConnell's backing Lisa Murkowski, but he's going to back Herschel Walker. And they're both backing, uh, just like Herschel Walker, McConnell and Trump are both backing Adam Laxalt in Nevada. And they're, you know, they're, it's, it's sort of a mixed bag. But um, I think Trump Jr. said something nice or went hunting or something recently with Eric Reitens. And that's a hot mess in Missouri waiting to happen. Um, well, that would be the hottest of hot messes. <laughs> so, that would I mean, be the no, hottest of hot messes. Yeah, and that's that primary is not till the first days of August, Charlie. I mean, the the, the pain that he can inflict is oh, yeah. it's profound. So let me let me take a a slightly different take on all of this because we could you know focus on the influence of the Orange God King from Mar-a-Lago, which is all true. I I agree with all of that, but I also think that what happened yesterday tells you a lot about what's happening on the ground what's happening to the electorate, that it's not all top down, that the electorate wants certain things, and that J.D. Vance made a calculation of what the 2022 Republican primary voter wanted or was willing to tolerate, and he gave it to them good and hard. I mean, he 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 made it. He made a bet. He said, "You know what? I'm going to be the the world's greatest flip flopper." You know, was it Preet Barara called him? You know, the pathetic loser, poser, fake jerk. But but here's the thing: uh, Vance knew that he could get away with that in the era of Trump. He can get away with that, and that he would accept it. So he. He would play every single uh, culture war card. He would hang out with Matt Gates. He would hang out with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, he would say that he didn't care about Ukraine. He could channel uh, raw racist uh, memes like the replacement theory. He could attack retired generals, all of that stuff. And he would not pay a price for it because he had an understanding of what the base voter was looking for. And he was right. He was right. When Marjorie Taylor Greene went and spoke at that white nationalist conference, you know, sponsored by a Holocaust denier named Nick Fuentes, and people said, well, you know, uh, J.D., you know, you're still, uh, you know, proud to have Marjorie Taylor Greene's endorsement. He said, absolutely. I'm not throwing her under the bus. She did absolutely nothing wrong. And so, you know, his refusal to apologize, he understood, would play well with the deplorable legions or at least with Trump himself. And he was right about this saying he didn't give a shit about Ukraine. You know, people are appalled. Like, what, you're, you're, you know, basically, you know, being an anti-anti-Putin stooge, you know, you know, he figured that at least that would play well with, you know, the GOP's number one Putin fan. And he was right about that. He was right about all of these things in terms of what voters are willing to put up with, what they most like. They like the extremism. They like the in-your-face willingness to uh, you know, say these things that are deeply offensive, uh, you know, engaging in conspiracy theories about oligarchs who were stealing the election. So leave Trump out of this just for the moment. This is the Republican voting base right now, and you know they 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 got what they wanted. They had a choice between. I mean, think about the percentage of voters in Ohio, Republican voters, that went to the polls and said. I want either J.D. Vance or Josh Mandel. They and they wanted those guys. That was more than 50 percent in Ohio. I, I think you're right. And this is a conclusion that we've been coming to for a while, that it's not the leaders, it's the voters. And the leaders are being they're following the voters now. And the voters, yes, the electorate right. of the Republican Party has gotten away from the establishment. And no matter where Trump is this is what they want and this is what they support. And it is um, very influenced by Q, at home with lies, at home with authoritarianism, 
living sometimes really in a completely a fantasy world of conspiracy, um, willing to to support the undermining of the judiciary, the checks and balances. Um, all of this is is cool with them, and 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 as you you know note, just a hunger for fight for the fight, um, and that you never ever ever give an inch. You never back down. It's fine if you've run into trouble with the law. When asked about Matt Gates recently, J.D. Yeah. Vance said that you know a lot of a lot of these problems when you're under federal investigation are as just a result of corrupt law enforcement. So now, yeah, so it, much for law and order. It's yeah. just it's it's zero sum killer be killed, and they want people who are killers. And and you are right. This is why Rob Portman got up this morning and wrote a nice you know endorsement of J.D. Vance. Rob and Portman, pretend like everything's fine. Yeah, uh, they all fell in line, even the ones who were uh, Trump skeptical. I, I guess the reason and I'm, the way I'm sort of thinking about this is, is, yes, Trump is still dominant, but there's something else out there that is that even if Trump disappears, that, it, it, you know, is, is going to continue. And also, I think it's a mistake to see that that is all top down, that it all flows from Trump. I think it flows from Trump down, but it also flows back. He is keeping his ear to the ground. He knows that he can't let um, his base stray too far from, you know, what he's thinking or, or, or vice versa. And to a certain extent, so that Don, Donald Trump is, of course, just calling the shots, but also he's following as well. And I think there's a certain unpredictability here. I agree. He said recently, oh, and my, I can't talk about the success of the vaccines because of my beautiful base. Well, exactly. I mean, there, there, there's almost a perfect example. Now, he has been willing to do that, but that is, that's kind of an outlier. It's only <laughs> on the vaccines because I think that you know, he's got that reptilian instinct that the vaccines, you know, is something that he can point to as a success, legitimately so, so that if he buys into the anti-vax you know, world, he, he gives that up. But, but again, that's taken on a life completely of its own. And I would also say, you know, the whole anti-gay movement. Yeah. I just want to remind people that Donald Trump did not run as an anti-gay marriage candidate. That was not one of the things that he pushed. And yet it has now been set loose. And there's no way that he's going to go up against that now. There's no way that he's going to go down to Florida and say, I think this is wrong. You know what we're doing about, you know, gays and lesbians. That is just not going to happen. So just keep that in mind as well, that while we're all focused on the orange God King in Mar-a-Lago, you know, shift the frame around to what the hell is happening to the Republican electorate. And then again, as you point out, and the people who ought to know better, the, the, the Rob Portman's of the world, who almost literally has nothing to lose by saying, screw it, if this is my, if my party loses its mind, I don't have to go along with all this. But he does anyway. So there's no resistance to it at all. This is a huge issue um, for me. Look at the class of retiring senators, all institutionalists on the Republican side this year, Toomey, Blunt, Burr, Portman. Uh, you know, it, 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 this is just, an, this is, so tragic. I used to tell people when I gave presentations for years that Lamar Alexander was my favorite senator, that he had quit the leadership so he could work across the aisle with Patty Murray and other yeah. Democrats to do serious policy. And during the impeachment of Donald Trump, he says, uh, during the Ukraine impeachment um, early in 2020, he says, you know, the Democrats, they've proven their case, basically. So I think now we should just leave it up to the electorate, meaning I am too wimpy to convict him when I know he should be con convicted and of, uh, for abusing his power. And I just admitted it. But I am too afraid to go home to Tennessee and bump into people at the golf club right. and the store and face the wrath of his voters. Well, yes. I mean, we, we saw that with Lindsey Graham that what all it took was somebody yelling at him in an airport and he decided, <laughs> OK, all right, well, I'm sorry. Can I, can I come back now? OK, this is why I think that what Larry Hogan, uh, the governor of Maryland, uh, is is doing is is perhaps naive. It uh, is, is quixotic. On the other hand, I think he deserves credit because here is a Republican who is pushing back against it, against all odds, against the evidence of our eyes, against all polls. And yet he's doing it. And, you know, unlike the Rob Portmans of the world, you know, who are just sort of bowing the knee, 
I, I give Larry Hogan some credit. What, what do you think? He gave that big speech, you know, last night where he talked about how it would be the definition of insanity for the Republicans to, you know, go with Trump or a Trump clone. I mean, I'm, I'm glad somebody's saying it. Larry Hogan is my governor and I adore him. Okay. Um, but I, I do agree with JVL that you can't just say, oh, reliving the past election and and saying it was stolen when it wasn't is that's just, you know, people are sick of that. You actually, I mean, he is a threat to democracy and that is what you have to come out and say. And so I'll, I'll respect people trying to inch away from Trump, Jeff Duncan, Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, Chris Christie, Will Hurd, you know, Larry Hogan. I mean, bring it on. But unless you're as blunt as Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney are, which Mitt Romney doesn't, you know, really want to do these days, um, it's not really going to get us there. No, I don't know that it's going to get us there, but it depends where, of course, where we are going. But, uh, but again, he is speaking out against this. That is something that we have been waiting for. We keep saying, when are Republicans going to speak out against it? And then when a Republican speaks out against it, it's like, well, that's just <laughs> hopeless. You should become a Democrat. Well, no. Um, if the Republican Party is ever to become sane, and I, I don't see that happening anytime soon, you are going to need to have people like Larry Hogan and Will Hurd. And I have, I have problems with a lot of these. You know, look, they don't all say exactly what I would have them say. But on the other hand, they're putting something on the line. So uh, actually, we have a family disagreement about this. And I, I, oh, no, I, I want to make it clear. I, I have a very different opinion than, than JVL does about Larry Hogan. I don't necessarily give him a complete, you know, three cheers huzzah, but I give him two cheers for this. And I wish that more Republicans would be willing to come out and say this. But if we piss on them from a great height for not saying everything we want them to say, then don't be surprised when everybody keeps their head down and says, okay, you know, I'm tallying up the pros and the cons. And, you know, I'm, you know, if I, if I say anything, I'm going to get beat up at my golf club and, and the folks from the bulwark are, you know, they're not going to give me any credit for it. I mean, not, not that I, I they think care. I'm going to agree, I'm gonna know, agree on the middle yeah, stance, yeah, which yeah. is that we have to let a thousand flowers bloom. Yeah. We have to encourage people to get into the to the mix and the fray. And we don't actually know in late 2023, 24, when the primary field is forming. I mean, now there seems like there really will be a lot of kind of non-Trump newly never Trump, whatever, contenders. And, and there will be a lively debate about this, about putting an end to Trumpism and why, you know, Larry Hogan would be making the case as a candidate for why Ron DeSantis is following the same playbook as Trump and that that is dangerous to democracy or not what America is about or something, maybe softer language. But we do want the debate and we do want more people in the debate. So, so I think I'm, I'm, so, well, I'm what, what, the what, two-tier camp because I want to encourage it. Yeah. So what, what is it that you're, you're unhappy about that, that Hogan is saying? He says, the truth is the last election was not rigged. It was not stolen. We simply did not offer the majority of voters what they were looking for. Uh, he does not minimize January 6th. He very specifically says that January 6th was, was incited by the irresponsible rhetoric of, of the president. So what is our, our standard here? What are we looking for? Yeah, I don't have it in front I mean, of me I, now. Yeah. <laughs> but like the people that you're citing, including JVL, I'm looking for more bold language about the danger and the threat. And that's the kind of thing that we've watched Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger do very bluntly. But they are not actually trying to pick up primary voters, and they're not trying to bring former Trump Republicans back into the fold. And, and that's what Larry Hogan is trying to do. And that okay. is the path to a real candidacy. No, right. I, again, I, I when I say quixotic, I, I, I am talking about tilting against women. I think you succeeded in dragging me into your corner, Charlie. Well, no, no. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm asking the question. Uh, what you know, as opposed to everyone deciding that we, you know, that everyone must vote for uh, Democrats because the way the country is divided, you know, we are at some point going to rely on non-crazy Republicans, and I understand that that is no one understands more than me. Uh, what an endangered species that is, which is why when somebody says, hey, I am one of them, rather than, you know, kick them out of bed for eating crackers, I'm okay, okay, I could use some help here. So let me just read you, this is the Wall Street Journal. In his speech, 
Larry Hogan also criticized Trump for his role in the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. January 6th was not enthusiastic tourists misbehaving. Hogan said it was an outrageous attack on our democracy incited by the losing candidates inflammatory false rhetoric. The last four years were the worst four years for the GOP since the 1930s, even worse than after Watergate, when Ronald Reagan had to rebuild the party from the ashes. So, okay, I just, come on. I, I want more of this. I want that. I, no, want I more. can applaud that, but I, I also want to say that it, this was a, a coup planned for two months. Right. January 6th was one day. Yeah. So the idea that people, like, incitement's not enough for me anymore. No, I, I'm, really, I, yeah. I'm really upset about a two-month coup that involved people at federal agencies and across state legislatures around the country and members of, of, of the U.S. House. I mean, that, to me, is more alarming than January 6th. So, yes, I mean, at some point, people are going to have to start calling this what it is, which was a well-planned coup. That well, I, well, I, of course, agree. And so my response to Larry Hogan would be, hmm, this is interesting. Tell me more. What do you think about all this? Tell me more. I, and, and I look, I agree with you. I'm desperate. I think it's really important that I make this point that I'm not asking Republicans to turn into Democrats. I am desperate for a healthy Republican Party because I think a sick Republican Party is radicalizing the Democrats. And that gets us nowhere. Yeah, this is the danger. Uh, look, I'm not under any illusions. And I, and I think what happened in Ohio made it pretty clear. There was kind of a split screen last night. And I'm, I'm aware of this, where on the one hand, you have the ultimate deplorable hypocrite, J.D. Vance, who, you know, wins this primary at the same time when Larry Hogan is fantasizing about having a lane for decent non-Trumpian Republicans. So you're having the refutation of that. On the other hand, this is something that we've been pushing for for some time. And perhaps at the end of the day, the only way that you're going to preserve democracy against authoritarian uh, Republicans will be to vote for Democratic candidates. But right now, we could use all the allies we can get. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you have to agree with Liz Cheney about everything on policy or agree with Adam Kinzinger. I'm going to have Adam Kinzinger on the podcast later this week. Don't agree with him on every single thing. But um, if somebody's willing to take a stand and put their career on the line, then hey, you know, more power to them. Yeah, and I want to finish by saying as a as a Maryland resident that Larry Hogan is one of the most popular governors in the country. He's in the top three, and he is um, just relentlessly bipartisan, and, and he's just a, he's as good as it gets, and we would be beyond lucky to have him for president, truly. Okay, so there, there you go. I will endorse him. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.